everyone, this is Sean Dowdell from the band Grey Days, and you are listening to Interview Under Fire. All right, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another brand new edition of Interview Under Fire. This is once again your host, Sonny, along with musician, author, and businessman, Sean Dowdell. This is quite the honor. Thank you so much for joining our podcast today on IUF. You know, Sean, this is an important yet exciting way to kick off 2021 for you, Mace and Kristen, over at Grey Days, of course, the late great Chester Bennington, with the release of your stripped-down version of Immense, titled Immense Stripped, which recently dropped on January 29th on Loma Vista Recordings. And I just want to say congratulations on all the well-deserved recognition it's been getting so far and still getting, you know, which is in reference to the many other prominent publications who've praised this music from Grey Days, like Rolling Stone, Revolver, Billboard, Loudwire, the list goes on. And there's just so much I want to unravel about this specific release. But before we get to all that, Sean, I've said a mouthful. I'm going to ask a very important question to start things off. How are you? I think it's an important one to ask, considering where we are all at, at our lives at this point. How's life in uh, Arizona right now, man? I'm doing great, man. You know, life is a gift. I, I feel like I'm blessed to wake up every day and be healthy. And um, wow, what an intro you gave me there. So thank you very much for that. That makes me feel a lot more special than I am. So uh, no, I feel great. Life is good. I'm very excited about the music. I think we're doing some really cool stuff. And hopefully the fans are, are digging what we're doing. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm really proud of it. And I feel great. You know, life as late, like we're just talking about many of us, you know, have also been away from the stage a lot as of late, you know, fans and musicians alike. But Sean, how are you keeping up your drum playing these days? Has anything, you know, changed for routine wise lately, if at all? Is that affecting your musicianship with the whole shutdowns and everything that's happening? No, if anything, I was able to dive into it more. We have a really great um, private rehearsal studio in Phoenix. And, uh, you know, it's a quick 30 minute drive from my home. And I go down there and I just throw my in-ear monitors in and I throw down for a couple hours and I'm playing more drums now than I have in a long, long time. Um, I actually feel great about my playing. I feel great about the writing that I'm doing with the guys and uh, I'm excited to get this next record done. I'm really proud of what we did on Stripped and uh, I'm sorry, a long way around your question. I feel great <laughs> about the way I'm playing and how much I'm playing right now. And if anything, the shutdown has pushed me more into my drums uh, than before. Yeah, you know, making the best of a situation is easier said than done. And you're definitely doing that. You know, something I like to ask all my guests is if this pandemic has opened up new things for you personally and artistically that you may have not known before about yourself. Because before the interview, I know we talked about your luxury tattoo and piercing studios called Club Tattoo, who you co-own with your wife, Thora. Is that is that correct? Yeah. And we were actually um, partners with Chester when he was alive as well. Yeah, yeah. In uh, Club Tattoo. So it was a passion project for him and I and something we got to do together. That was a lot of fun. And, you know, it's my main, uh, my main source of income. My main thing is club tattoo and I live, eat and breathe that, uh, that business every day. But uh, as far as the, the shutdown, you know, is concerned, what I've ended up doing was diving more into my, my musical writing, my musical playing, but I also dove into writing a book with my wife. Right. Uh, it comes out in May. This is my second, um, I guess what I'll call my second and a half book. I wrote some chapters in another book. That's not quite hundred percent mine, but uh, this is my second full book and it's called brand renegades and it comes out in May. We did a really uh, great publishing deal with uh, entrepreneur and 
we're really excited. They seem to really like the, like the product and like, like the book and think that it's going to be accepted really well from entrepreneurs and small business owners around the world. And that's what we're hoping. That's why we wrote it. So if anything, I've just been able to concentrate in areas of my life that maybe weren't getting as much attention as before, um, especially since this, this is more about the music podcast. I don't think I've spent this much time writing music probably since uh, I was in a band called Waterface. And, uh, you know, that was back in 2000. I'm doing that every day for the last eight months to write this new record. And we just finished our writing sessions about two weeks ago. And now it's just a matter of rehearsing all of the parts and writing different transitions for the music. When we go in, uh, we'll record our new record in the end of March, early April in LA. Uh, so now it's just preparation for the stuff we wrote. You know, for the record, we can go beyond the music, by the way, it's, it's about what makes you, you. And I want to uh, touch on the author base just, just for a little bit, because I also want to congratulate you on this information that because your club tattoo it grew into, I think, even more than that, into six locations in Arizona and on the Las Vegas Strip, including, you know, Planet Hollywood, Miracle Mile Shops and the Link Hotel and Casino. You know, what is the, you know, before I touch on the author base, but what is the outlook like for Club Tattoo for you during what would most call an unprecedented time we're all in? Oh, man. Well, you know, I do very well financially in life, but at the same time, when when the shutdown happened, all of my streams of income stopped and I didn't hmm. want to my, I should say my wife and I didn't want to uh, lose our employees. We didn't want to have to face our employees and, and lay them off. So we literally funded 130 employees out of our own pocket for a, about two months. Um, sorry about that. I think, I, think I lost okay. it for a second. You there? No, you're um, good, so yeah. we, for about two months and uh it was scary. It was, it was a eye-opening, very scary thing for us, for sure. And uh, we came out of it. Okay. You know, we, we yeah. did some very smart things financially, but uh, we were able to keep our brand and our, and our stores open uh, after the initial shutdown. And now we're back on the road to recovery and thriving and doing well. Speaking of thriving, this also transitioned into the publication of your first book. I'm going to wind the clock back to 2017 titled, Tattooed uh, Millionaire, and which describes your journey in creating the building of this multi-million dollar business. And you and you started this with less than eight thousand dollars, and now look where you're at. You know, two and a half books. You know, how does? I'm sure there's a sense of you know humbles, humbleness that comes into your just just your mind when you know that you've completed all this so far. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I don't think self-adulation is. Uh, a, it's not a, it's not something people want to hear all the time about how great you think you are. So uh, if you give yourself a purpose and things to try to motivate you other than yourself, then things become a little bit more valuable, uh, not only to you, but, but to the people around you and you become a better leader, a better mentor for other people. And those are the things that start to matter, how you give back, how you're changing maybe not the world or changing your industry per se and having a positive effect on your employees, your staff and your family. Those are the things that start to motivate you and matter a little bit more. Um, when I wrote tattooed millionaire, it was just kind of my life story. And I, you know, I, I skipped over a lot of stuff and, 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 you know, I didn't want to write, you know, um, war and peace for my first book. So, you know, it was a, I guess a truncated version of, of my, 
entrepreneurial world, uh, a little bit of my, my musical world, and then stepping into becoming a small business owner. Um, I just wanted to tell my story, how I got there. And basically I was a, you know, a pretty white trash, poor kid and, you know, didn't have a, a, a lot of things handed to me in life and worked very hard for everything I had. And I was just telling that story of how I got there and trying to come from a motivational, uh, you can do it to point of view. Um, I talk a lot about my failures. I think I talk more about my failures in that book than I talk about my successes. But I think, you know, important thing for young business owners to know is that you're going to fail. And the quicker you come to that yeah. realization and own it, and realize that failure is part of the success recipe, uh, the quicker you'll be on your way to actually uh, sustaining and, and creating the success for yourself. The guys that stand up on stage and talk about how they've never failed a day in their life, or they're just so full of shit. And I, 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 can't, I can't buy into that. I think being more real with people and letting them know, yeah, this is, you know, how I failed. This is how I fucked up. This is, this, this is also how I dealt with it. This is how I got up. You know, this is how I lost $2 million in a business deal. And I do not feel good about it. I don't want to have to uh, do that again. So what am I going to do to not do that again? I'm going to learn from it. So you have to break it down and realize what was it that made me fail? How can I learn from it? How can I avoid that mistakes moving forward? And then, and then actually do the, do, do the process of moving forward and growing from it. So all those things were the main points of that book. For my listeners who don't know where they can, where can, where can they get your book, your previous two books? And the, I guess your two and a half books, the new one that's coming out <laughs> this summer, where can the they purchase that? The two and a half books is a little bit tongue in cheek, but uh, <laughs> so my first book is the only book that's available to purchase right now through Barnes and Noble, okay. uh, Amazon. You can get it pretty much uh, anywhere. You can buy books online, uh, uh, motivational press, uh, any of that. And then my second book with Thora is called uh, Brand Renegades, Our, Our Fearless Path from Startup to Global Brand. It comes out May 1st. You can pre-order through Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and I think there's several other places that entrepreneurs put it out uh, so far, but I'm, that's the f ones I know about right now. Okay, perfect. I'm going to make sure I put that, I put that information in there. Now let's talk about the music aspect. I know we touched on that briefly before we dove into your other, um, other professions, you know, gray days, you know, you guys have been around that specifically 1993 to 1998, but as a whole, let's dive into the whole, you know, live experience for you personally, Sean, you know? How, what was your favorite part about, you know, touring, just the whole live experience? Because now we're all kind of just taking like an unexpected step back. And does it make you have a growing appreciation of the concert going life? Because, you know, we're talking like, you know, culture, you know, fans, even the food. There's just so many things to pick apart about what makes that part of music amazing. What was your biggest takeaway from that life? Um, my biggest takeaway, and this is going to sound really odd, but my That's biggest okay. takeaway from that life is realizing how so many of my friends uh, fell into the addiction and the bad lifestyle choices. Um, when you're on tour, there's basically 23 hours a day of nothing to fucking do. And you can find yourself falling into alcohol and drugs and women and shopping and all this stuff that doesn't feed your soul. And that was my biggest takeaway is how do you, how can you live a good life touring? You know, it's a very difficult thing to do. And as a young man, it's impossible for me to do it. Uh, as I'm older now, it'd be a lot easier, but I'm not touring right now. And I don't have to deal with those problems. But at 20 years old, it's easy to see how so many of my friends ended up bankrupt and 
divorced three times and with addiction problems and alcohol problems. And because literally when you're between shows, there is nothing to do and you find yourself going crazy trying to find stuff to do. So I think, um, you know, my, like I said, my biggest takeaway is that, but, uh, if I had any advice for anyone going out on the road into that situation, young bands now, it would be to find some good mentors and try, try to set down some different foundational choices that you can lay out as a, as a solid lifestyle before you get out there. Let me ask you a million dollar question. Do you miss that lifestyle as, a, no. as you know, away from the whole, yeah, the negative aspects about it, but as far as, you know, taking the stage, you know, interacting with the oh. fans as, you know, so, so the one hour a day, of course I miss that. Oh yeah. Of okay. I miss yeah. Yeah. <laughs> playing live. Yeah. Of course I miss playing live in front of crowds that, that never got old. I always enjoyed that. I always love recording. I always love writing. Um, but, the, but the traveling part of it, especially, you know, I never did it to the point of success of where Chester and the Lincoln park guys were doing it where they were on, you know, private jets and enormous tour buses for each one of them. I never got to that level. The biggest I ever got was to a small tour bus where the whole band had to share. Um, but even, even with that being said, I always enjoyed playing live and I always will enjoy playing live. It's something I, I will do probably till I'm in my sixties or seventies. You know, a very popular topic on interview under fire for the last God, uh, 10, 11 months. And you've seen this, a lot of bands have done. This is live streaming. A lot of the bands, what they do on stage are taking it on the screen. Like we're doing, obviously. Um, I, I think code orange was one of the first bands to do it. they they did that, you know, that uh, show in an empty venue in Pennsylvania. Then they streamed it for the fans. You know, we had, you know, bands on interview under fire talk about, you know, you know, August Burns Red did it, Lamb of God did it, Behemoth did it, just a bunch of bands. But with the amount of experience that you've taken in, Sean, throughout your career, I wanted to ask you: Do you think that the quarantine-induced live streaming surge we're seeing right now from all these bands? Is that going to affect the touring musician business going forward? From your perspective, like, do you still see bands? doing something like this even after all this is over no no it's boring um you know those guys are just doing the best of what they can do with you know they're dealing with uh to me they're dealing with an impossible situation trying to generate this that's what they do for a living so i understand they have to generate an income somehow some way you know um not only about them but their 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 crew their their sound guys their lighting guys all these guys are out of work so they're trying to figure out a, a a way that makes sense within their industry to uh provide a living and that's that's the best they can do i think as soon as live shows come back though that stuff is it's it's not it's there's nothing exciting about it so i think hmm. when when you're forced to stay home and and that's all you can do then you'll accept that choice it's kind of like when you're you know, watching, uh, you're in a weird hotel somewhere and they don't have cable and you're dial flipping and an episode of chips comes on, you find yourself watching it, but you wouldn't normally do that if you were back in your home state and you had cable and you could go out. So, um, I think these, the fans, they're, they're forced to kind of choose something that it's, it's either that or nothing. Right. So I think that's, what's going on right now. I don't see it as something that's going to replace, uh, actual live shows. You might see it happen in a more international level where bands aren't able, if they're doing a tour cycle, let's say somewhere in North America, they might stream that tour, uh, that live show per se, uh, overseas somewhere else and get people to subscribe that way. But I don't think you're going to see it in the confines of what we're witnessing right now. 
And of course, I have, the, I have the liberty to mosh in my own room if I want to. There's always that. But how much longer can I do it, right? You do the live streaming and then now what? How much more creative you can get? And I like asking that question. There's no right or wrong answer. I mean, I've had musicians, you know, talented musicians like yourself say, yeah, I would love to do live streaming. It still allows me a way, you know, to engage with my fans. And I've had some artists who say, oh, no, I'm not doing shit until all this is over. And you never know. There's always that uncertainty going forward. I think contextually, um, you'll see on the streaming side, you will see bands and actors and actresses start to engage in lifestyle streaming. You're, you'll start to see them. Um, our, our friends in Julian K, they do a thing, and I forget the name of it. It's it's uh, it's a thing where fans just kind of watch them hang out and write songs or but you're 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 mm. getting a peek into their lifestyle. You're not always watching a show. You're not watching a live performance. You're watching them in their element do something different. Or uh, I, I think you'll see, you know, bands take on that type of an approach with the streaming, where you're getting a peek into their life, so to speak. Now let's talk about an element that you are very familiar with because we haven't touched on it yet. The new EP, Amends Stripped, came out January 29th, uh, just a couple weeks ago, and for my listeners who don't know, this is the acoustic version of Amends in 2020, you know, from songs like, you know, Shouting Out, Sometimes, uh, Soul Song, What's in the Eye, The Syndrome. These tracks are reimagined, featuring different takes from, of course, the late, great Chester, you know, his, his original recordings. And, you know, keep in mind, he was 17 at the time, which was that makes it even more amazing. And you guys also recorded have a new session that was done after the Amends release. Now, something I want to point out to me, especially for someone who grew up listening to and was heavily influenced by Chester's lyrics and voice, it felt like an encore from that beautiful release you guys put out last summer. Now, if you're able to, I don't, I want to have you talk here in a second, but just fill in the backstory here because it surrounds you, Mace Byers, and Kristen Davis on putting all this together along with a handful of other passionate and creative people who had a hand in these back-to-back releases. What was that experience like coming together with so many people that work with you, but at the same time, were all positively affected by Chester in some way? Did it feel overwhelming at any point? All right. So you packed a lot into there. So I let did. me back up. So, so most of these songs, Chester was 2021 20, when he recorded. So let okay. me just dispel that, that myth real quick. Um, some of the songs he was 18 when we recorded, but most of them, he was either 2021 20, or 18 not younger than I know there's some people I was 15 when he recorded this. So I just want to get that clear first. So secondly, what was it like to work with all these people? So there's in the stripped version specifically, there wasn't a lot of people. We worked with producer Billy Bush, who we loved working with Mm -hmm. uh, on these uh, four tracks. We worked with him. And then uh, one of the tracks we kept in their original format, which was just a two track recording of us in a live room with our original guitar player, Bobby Benish. That's the version of the syndrome done acoustically you know, it's not a perfect take. It's not a bunch of overdubs. There are no overdubs. It's literally just us in a room live with a couple of microphones down to two track Chester sitting next to me on a piano and that's it. Um, But I also felt like that was a really special performance and we couldn't capture that the same way if we tried to do it again. Um, So there's that. Um, Now to your other question, the, the, what was it like working with so many people? I'm assuming you're talking about the amends album when we brought in all the guest stars and all that. Yeah. So that was very organic as we, as we were putting it together, it wasn't like, Oh, we're going to have this guy and this guy and this guy. It really started out with one person. We started out with uh, Ryan Chuck and 
Uh, then we had Head from Corn, uh, and then James from Corn um, come in, and then it just kind of grew from that. It was never an intention. We're going to get this guy and this guy and this guy. Nothing like that happened. It was a track by track basis. And as we wrote, we kind of said, Hey, uh, what if we uh, ask this person to, to be involved? And then we started having people asking us and we had to put the brakes on some of it because some of it felt um, unnatural or something that maybe Chester wouldn't have wanted to do, but we tried to keep it as close to the heart as possible and, and get people involved that, either Chester really admired, loved, or really admired people who really admired Chester and had an impact in one way or another um, when Chester was around. And that's really what it stemmed from. And it was great working with every single person that we brought in on the record, brought something special and unique and added a value uh, in their own way to each of the songs that they played on. It was, it was great. I really enjoyed the process. I really enjoyed getting to know some of these people who I really didn't know beforehand. Um, some of them I did, of course, but uh, there were people who I didn't really know that were friends with Chester. Um, there's a great guy named Renee Mata who helped us do a lot of stuff uh, pertaining to the, the production and, and recruiting of the people we had involved in the record and getting the record uh, in Tom Wally's hands. And I had known about Renee for years and, and Chester was good friends with him, but he lived in New York, so I was never really around him. And uh, he and I became great friends through Chester's passing. You know, we just started talking on the phone quite a bit and just really found out we liked each other quite a lot. And I could, see, I could, could totally understand why Chester became close friends with him. So it was a healing uh, process in many ways for us. And it gave, uh, gave way for us to express our grief through redoing this music. You know, between the production process, like you just talked about, and whether it's with, you know, writing or structuring the songs, I want to talk about the themes to Grey Days' music because you guys did have Wake Me in 1994 and No Sun Today in 1997. Then Immense came and then now the stripped version of that. Now, there's a very early interview that I, I can't remember where I found it, but Chester described it, it, just an example of a song about somebody realizing that the things don't work out the way you want them to. And it's hard to think straight when it happens. Now, when I heard Amends and the stripped down version of it, that theme kind of just stuck with me throughout. And what Chester said, it was just repeating over and over. How important in your perspective are themes to you, Sean? Is that more about helping you guys write or sound, or is that more for the audience? You know, I'm sure if Chester were alive today, the themes of our music would probably change a little bit and they'd hmm. be um, in a different room. But these specific songs were originally uh, written, the lyrics and the, and the mood for them in the 90s. And in the 90s, you know, you came out of the, the era where people were talking about sex, drugs, rock and roll and parties. And the 90s became a scene where music, at least the music we were into, was written about sadness and feeling lonely and feelings of inadequacy and feelings of pain and feelings of addiction and feeling of relationships going bad and um, love that was lost or love that you never had. Those things were topics of great A's and that really became to define who we were uh, as lyric writers. Chester and I wrote all the lyrics and, and we shared a lot of the emotional um, intensity in those songs. And really you kind of get to wrap great A's up in a, uh, in, in the theme of um, moody, sadness, emotional music. And that's really what the band was about. And so we're still trying to make sure that those themes are carried through to the new renditions uh, of the modern versions. Did you ever see your albums as snapshots of, of where you are at certain times in your life, looking back? 
course. I listen to music. I can go right back to the day I wrote it. I can go right mm. back to a moment of playing it on stage or a way I was feeling uh, with the guys uh, when we were playing it at a certain point. And yeah, there's a lot of those moments. I can't do that for every song, but there's certain songs. Maury Sky is one of them where I can go back right to the moment of Chester and I writing the lyrics on the beach together. Then it's Man. very vivid. So it's like a time machine almost um, like you can just pinpoint to a specific point in your life. You know, I say this to people a lot. Music really is the soundtrack to your life. And you can go yeah. back to just like in a movie, you can go back to a soundtrack in a movie and go, oh, this is that part in that movie. It's the same way with your life. You know, I go back to listening to that Allison Chains uh, Unplugged album. I know right where I was when that oh, came out. So uh, good. That is a great you know, album. Uh, it's, yeah, it's my favorite performance that those guys did. It's just incredible. But they had a huge impact on who grade A's was as writers and, and musicians. Maybe a lot of people don't hear it in our music, but they were huge influences for, for our writing style. You know, from the different experiences and perspectives in your timeline that you have taken in, which we have discussed about so far, whether it's your love for music, you know, or your family drumming for grade A's or your most in-depth personal relationships with, you know, your wife, Thora, or, or whether it was Chester, all the other band members that you've, you've, you know, shared your experiences with, and your, you know, growing successful business at Club Tattoo or your best-selling book you published. What is the most rewarding part for someone like you, Sean, who is now at this point in their career, at the same time, has been involved with so many other different aforementioned talented bands, artists, individuals throughout that timeline. And you've experienced so much already. Do you ever take, you know, just stop to take a look back at how far you've come? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I do. Um and I don't like to stand around and pat myself on the back too much. I, I am quite proud of the things I've accomplished and the people I've accomplished them with. Uh, I guess what my, my biggest thing for, I guess we're talking about accomplishments. The thing that I get out of it most is um, hopefully being a good mentor for my children, uh, getting to the, the finished product I like to do that with my wife a lot when we finish something, when we open a new store or uh, when we wrote a book or, or even on this, this Great Days album, this last Great Days album, you get to the point of completion and you, you have that sense of accomplishment. Like we made it to the finish line. We did it. Um, but I don't spend a lot of time on that. I don't I don't. I even feel weird when I have to post it on social media because <laughs> I don't want it to come across as, uh, you know, bragging about stuff. But I also want people to know, hey, this is out there. So we did this. Um, and I, and I also use it as a motivational tool for others. I do a lot of speaking around uh, the world, a lot of teaching. I do a lot of um, mentors, uh, mentorships with other uh, business owners. And I try to bring people up the ladder. It's one of the things that I'm very grateful for in my life. So to find a sense of purpose to give back is one of the things that I really love to pull from every single thing that I do, whether it's music, business, writing, anything that I do, I try to find some way uh, to uniquely give back. And, and that's, that stuff is what gives me the purpose to go do the next thing. Yeah. So man. I guess that's as simply as I can put it. I know that's not, uh, no, no, that's, uh, that is, that's, an answer, that's an not, now I want to this, remember what I said earlier about staying humble and you are one of the most humble guests I've ever even had the you know opportunity to talk to. And I think that's, that just resonates because obviously I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the music you guys put out so much appreciated on your end. Thank you. Uh, you know, and Thank you. you know, I'm sure as far as aspirations here, would it be safe to say that you, you see things differently now since when you first started playing music in the industry? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's uh, understated. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're 20 years old and you're trying to, you're trying to make it for all the wrong reasons. You just want to make it because that's what guys were doing back then. And you didn't realize what even made it meant. Um, and you kind of get lost in the moment sometimes and you forget why you're writing music and it should be fun. And once it became not fun, that's when the band broke up, you know, mm. originally um, when we stopped realizing and how much fun we were actually having together and what we were capable of doing together. And we started taking each other for granted. So yeah, these are moments that I absolutely don't take for granted. Now. Um, I remember every single thing we did during the amends sessions and wanted to do it for the right reasons and make sure we honored our friend in the right way. Uh, I wanted it to be something that he would be very proud of had he been here. And I think we accomplished that. Not an easy thing to do to try to be in the mind of somebody who's not here. But, you mm -hmm. know, I knew him so well. I, I feel like I could probably do as good a job uh, as anybody uh, with that, especially knowing what we were planning and working on before he passed away. It would be, I think it would be a little harder had we not had those conversations prior to his death. But um, for me, I, uh, I am – I guess what most people would be, would call jaded. I'm jaded. Uh, I, I understand the music industry a lot more than I ever did back then. And I understand people's motivations. And, um, you know, I was just having this, this conversation with Kristen earlier. It's uh, there's not a lot of money in music anymore. And I think that to me is a good thing right now. I mean, I obviously always want to make money, but it really um, shines a light on our project for making sure that we are hundred percent transparent in why we're doing this. Uh, if, if we're doing this to try to chase some huge record deal, there's just not, they're not out there to have that anymore. Unless you're a pop star or a rap star, it doesn't work like that in the rock industry anymore. Um, and that to me is almost a good thing. I, it's going to sound so weird, but once you take away the element of money, all you're left with is the music and why we're doing it. So we're really conscious of why we're doing the music and how we're doing the music. So it makes it a lot easier to get motivated and and center ourselves when we have a disagreement about a certain part or something. We always go back to why we're doing this. We're making sure we're honoring our friend and making sure that the music is as good as it can possibly be. And that is the only thing that matters, period. I'm guessing there'd be a, a sense of fulfillment for Chester's legacy in releasing something like this. 100%. Uh, on many levels, too, by the way. Not only that we were able to complete it, but... You know, a lot of people don't realize the, the, the history of Great A's was pretty much erased by Warner Brothers. And I, there's some people out there that argue with me about it, but they're wrong. Hmm. Uh, when, when Hybrid Theory came out, we got the cease and desist from the, the, the attorneys at Warner Brothers. And they talked Chester into pulling everything. I'm talking iTunes, the CDs, everything, our distribution deals. It was all pulled. And we weren't some small, crappy garage band. We, were, we had several record deals. We were doing very well. We were selling you know thousands of units. So... Um, and your music really was great. Fun. I mean, your music was Thank great. You. I mean, I mentioned the albums that you guys put out. Um, I highly recommend my listeners to pick them up. Anyway, I don't mean to interrupt you there, but okay. go ahead. Uh, but but a lot of people don't realize that our history was basically erased off the planet. And for, for me to finally be able to get a chance to uh, take the music with the rest of these guys and knowing that this was a thorn in Chester's side as well before he passed that makes it worth it to me because we're able to see it across the finish line. It had, had he passed before us picking this baton back up and putting great days back together, I don't think I would have done it. It would have been too much of an uphill climb and too many battles to fight, but everybody around him understood how important it was to him before he passed. Yeah. So it made it a lot easier. 
Yeah, when I heard amends, I mean, I, I mean, I still get goosebumps just thinking about that record because, I mean, Chester, I mean, he touched so many lives. I'm one of them. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him, honestly. And something that I want to leave this interview with, you know, I don't want to keep you for too long, Sean, but his wife, Talinda, I believe this was written in Rolling Stone. She, she asked you, I believe, to keep Chester's voice the way it is. And I thought, is that true? Uh, sort of. She, so she's like, look, don't, you know, don't, uh, I, I actually forget the way she worded it, but it was something to, something to the effect of like, just make sure that you're not, you know, she said first, first, one thing I can tell you, she said for sure. She said, please just don't make it suck. And I laughed and I said, I won't, I promise it will not suck. It's Chester. It's uh, not going to suck. <laughs> yeah. She really didn't, she, she really didn't want us to, um, I, I guess use too much filters or, or mm -hmm. stuff, but I, I don't think, she really knew what she was asking at the time. She just wanted to, she, I think the, the, the moral of what she was asking was to keep the integrity of his intentions there. I think that's the, the whole yeah. statement in, in one sentence is just make sure that, that we keep the, in his original intentions intact. Yeah. Which we did. Yeah. Which, yeah. You definitely did that. And I thought that just struck a chord, especially with, you know, someone like me, I'm sure all the other fans heard the same thing. Now do me a favor, stick around just for one minute after the interview. Sure. But the last question, since you did kind of mention it a little bit, I figured I asked this question anyway. Sure. Uh, we're going to, you know, finish things off on a pretty cool note. Five favorite albums you can think of at the top of your head. <laughs> uh, Allison chains, dirt, uh, Depeche mode violators, my favorite album. Um, oh my gosh. Allison That's... chains, dirt, uh, the cure disintegration, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, and Keen, Hopes and Fears. Oh, my gosh. You think you and my uncle would be, like, great friends. That would be probably in this, in this top ten, at least four out of those five. But, uh, uh, Sean, this has been such an honor. I mean, I I can't believe I was able to actually sit here and talk to you, like, even today, you know. So, I mean, who would have thought my, you know, during a pandemic, I would be talking to hosting someone like Sean Dowdell on my own show. But, you know, do you oh, have thanks, any, man. you know, uh, no, thank you, man. Do you have any last words or shout outs, anything you would like to plug in as far as your work you put out into the world, but you know, anything as far as grade A's is concerned for the fans and listeners going forward? Uh, keep an eye out for a uh, strip that we just put out uh, two weeks ago, and then uh, we'll be recording our new record in early April. And I'm just really proud of the guys in the band, Mace and Kristen. A lot of times they don't get a voice. The people always want to talk to me. And that's unfortunate because those guys have a lot of really interesting stories and a lot of cool stuff to say. I wish they got a little bit more chances to be interviewed and, and talked. And, you know, we just we really miss our friend. And uh, I don't think that's ever going to go away. So we love you, Chester. And and we miss you. And uh, we hope that you're proud of us, man. And let me tell you this. If you guys ever get a chance to come back to Dallas and do a show, let's do one with you, Mason, Kristen. Like, obviously, I like I said. We would do these interviews in person. I can't wait to get back out there and do this. It'd be such an honor to meet you face to face to actually do something that's normal from the previous life we all were, you know, acquainted with. But, you know, for everyone who's listening, you know, this is Sean Dowdell from Great A's. Immense Stripped is out now, came out January 29th on Loma Vista Recordings. If you can purchase the record, you know, the bands can't do it without your help. You know, listen, to of course, Spotify numbers will always help, but I still have I still buy records. It's in the corner of my room. That's still like stacked. I've been buying them. So I don't know how it's been awesome. for you, but you know, uh, uh, Sean, thank you so much for the bottom of my heart. You be safe out there and we will do this next time. Of course. Thanks for having me on.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to Interview Under Fire podcast. If you guys liked what you heard, please subscribe and share our channel. And please leave a five-star review as that helps us tremendously. And also, if you guys have any questions or comments, you can find us at Interview Under Fire at Facebook or at Instagram. Or you can write us directly at schwag at interviewunderfire.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-G at interviewunderfire.com. Or Rezablade, that's R-E-Z-A-B-L-A-D-E at interviewunderfire.com.